Good morning. So good to be with you guys. As Pastor Nicky said, we've been part of Emerge. Um, well, we are part of Emerge for, I think, about three years. It's been our home church, and I reckon everything good about our lives uh, has been connected to Emerge, uh, Pastor Mark and Nina, in some incredible way. They have been amazing um, in all aspects of life, so it's such an honor to be part of this church. Uh, I'm the national, what they call National Advancement Director for Alpha Crucis. It sounds like a Star Wars um, kind of job title. And basically what it uh, entails is the fact that we're trusting to see a Christian Pentecostal university formed within the broader scape of the Australian higher education space. Now the question is why would we need something like that? Um, But I want to take a minute or two just to tell you a bit about the story. Alpha Crucis is 75, just over 75 years old. Um, And one of the beauties is always understanding how things started. There were a group of young people that went to a Baptist college to study theology because they felt God's call on their life. And in their desire, they started praying and the Spirit of God just hit them like we know Pentecost does. And they got sacked from the college because they prayed too loudly, (laughs) and it was too exuberant. So they actually went to the AOG, uh, now the ACC, and said, we need a a, a facility, we need a college that can train us, because we believe that God's calling us into ministry. And that's where the AOG, now the ACC's Bible College, started. And from that point to now, more than 20,000 people has been trained for ministry and different spheres of life. About 30 years ago, a guy called uh, Pastor David Cartledge stood up at our national conference and said, for more than 50 years, you've been training ministers for churches, but God is saying that the time will come where you will train ministers for the marketplace. It was such a moment that the national executive under Pastor Andrew Evans took that word and they went and discerned and came back to the ACC and said, we believe this is God speaking. So for the last 30 years, we've been on this journey, sort of grappling with the fact, what does it mean for us to become a Christian university within in Australia? Now, one of the interesting things is, if you, if you don't know this, that every university in Australia started as a secular initiative, where if you look at the Oxfords, the Yales, uh, the um, Harvards, the Cambridge, Princeton, all those universities were actually God-given initiatives started to train Christian leaders to change the world. But the first university in Australia, actually the University of Sydney, said that we, we want to make a statement. We don't want Christianity or religion in the higher education space. They fought it up into the constitutional court to keep Christianity out and lost it there. But it sort of put something in, uh, in the pathway of ensuring that when we train our next generation of leaders, we train them in secular thought, actually shaping them away from Christ and away from Christianity. And it's been that call that has driven us to say, we need presence, we need a seat at the table. Because we all know <laughs> that public policy is shaped by higher education research. I'm just going to mention a few. Safe schools, gender fluidity. All those things were higher education research research products that have now shaped what society is becoming. And we need a seat at the table to say, we want to bring a Christ perspective back. We want to bring spirit presence back into the life of Australia. And we want to see that happen. So, If you want any more information, uh, we'll have some info at the back. Uh, But it is an incredible journey to see how God is actually pulling us towards scaling a mountain that no one in terms of the evangelical slash Pentecostal space has been able to scale in in Australia. So let's get it done. You good with that? I want to talk uh, with you this morning uh, around a topic that's very close, probably one of the um, sermon topics that has framed my understanding of life over the last 30 years um, more than any other, and it's all about mind mountains. I want to take you through a little experience this morning to show you how easily I could change the way you see things and experience things. Is that okay? Let's 
Put the first slide up. So, quick question. Is that moving or is it static? Okay, who says it's moving? Raise your hand. Who says it's static? Okay, so all the left squad, you go that side. The movers, that side. The statics, that side. Let's, no. <laughs> Let's put on the next one. So focus on the space between those black squares. Who sees gray dots? Are there gray dots? But who sees gray dots? So are there gray dots? <laughs> So, are you telling me that you're seeing something, but it's not there? <laughs> Let's go to the next one. <laughs> um, if you focus on that, who sees a cat? Uh, anyone seeing a cat? Just raise your hand. Who doesn't see a cat? Okay. Pray afterwards. <laughs> um, <laughs> last one. Last one. Okay. So, there's a little picture. Who sees an old man? Okay, who sees a lady? Who sees a dog? There's another lady somewhere. Who sees a second lady? Okay, who sees a bird? Who sees a frog? There's no frog. So if you raise your hand, just, um, there's really, you need prayer. If <laughs> so the mind is a very, very interesting tool. But here's the thing that we've got to understand. The mind is not a tool that determines reality. The mind is a tool that discovers reality. Can I say that again? Your mind is not a tool that is the objective uh, reality meter in your life that determines what is true or not. The only reason you have a mind is because you were made in the image and likeness of God. And it's put you on this journey to discover what reality actually is. I think the problem in today's time, if we've, if we've fallen into the trap thinking that my mind can now determine reality. So now we're looking at gray dots and frogs and little pictures. And we're telling people that it's real, but actually it only exists in here. So think about this. Your mind is a mountain that needs to be climbed. When I thought about that picture, I wondered how many people are still stuck at the foot of the mountain. That you've never scaled, you've never climbed the challenges that sit in your mind. I remember um, a few years ago, a friend of mine took me to climb Mount Barney. Anyone ever walked or climbed Mount Barney? Great little walk. Uh, we did it in a day up and down. Uh, the problem with Andrew that took me is he doesn't like paths. So he sees the mountain and he says, okay, we'll go this way. And it's weird because it's so easy the other way around. And at a certain point, he took us to a ledge and he said, we're going around here. And I'm like, but there's another way. Um, there's a bit. He said, no, we're going this way. And he just went. He's also one of those guys that doesn't ask he just tells, and there we went. And I had to take the first step, and I don't know if you've ever experienced that with heights, but as soon as I took that first step and I looked down and I realized that's death, it's high, I just froze. I just stood there. And Andrew was just, are you coming? I said, yes, someday. Um, but I st stood there frozen, just like, uh, and I had to fight a mountain in my mind to actually take the next step. It almost took me 20 minutes to do this and to trust that I can walk that ledge with a size 11 feet. It's made for babies, little babies to crawl, not big men. But I realized there that, that so often the beauty when I went around, I looked back and I thought, oh, did it. Have you ever felt that? When you sit in front of something, whether it be an emotional challenge, whether it be a physical challenge, a sickness thing, when you got onto the other side and you looked back, there was this sense of, did it. I reckon so often we miss that because we are stranded at the foot of the mountain, terrified to take the next step. See, in a big way, you are your own mountain. Just think about that for a second. 
You are your own mountain. And there's something in your life that you've got to explore and hike your own psychological trials. You've got to explore the beauty. And at times, you've actually got to visit the dangers in, that's hidden in the darkness. And, and like all of us, when you start walking on this path and you realize that it's laden with obstacles, there's certain obstacles that have kept you stuck for so long that you've actually got to climb over. Who's ever seen a tree fallen, falling, that's fallen across the road? That suddenly, for most of us, we look at that tree thinking, okay, well, that's it. And for so many of us, we've had trees falling across the road of our lives, and guess what we did? We just stopped. We just said, that's it. Instead of realizing that it's just an obstacle that I've either got to move or I've got to climb over, but it's not a stop street. It's not a sign to say God's finished. It's just a moment. And you've got to recalibrate and you've got to find a different way, but you have to consider that if you allow that moment to become an obstacle, it'll stop progress for the rest of your life. And it's sort of connected to this little statement that your victories in the external world are the peaks that you scale inside of you. The victories in the external world, the stuff that we want to conquer in this life, is actually so connected to what happens inside your mind. And I'm convinced that there are certain mountains that God's going to help some of us climb over this next season. So I want to take you to a very well-known verse in the book of Romans. Romans, probably one of the most technical books in the Bible. Um, I think one of the keys to understand the book of Romans is to understand the therefore statements. So if you understand those therefore statements, then suddenly the book of Romans starts making a lot more sense. And there's three critical therefore um, transitions that you've got to understand. The first one is where Paul comes and actually defines the mess that we're in. That that's all about the condition of sin um, and the destruction of sin and how God purposed to, to change that narrative over our lives. The second one is understanding the mercy that we received. And the third one is coming to grips with the mission that we've been called to. So if you understand that, you realize that salvation is never a destination. It's a starting point of actually living this life. Getting people to a point of salvation is inviting them into the room of this incredible life that God has created for us. So in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, Paul comes and he helps us to grapple with um, this understanding of what is this mission that we've been called to. And he starts by saying, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, I just want to say, um, Paul only had two options. I'm good with that. Um, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in what? In view of God's great mercy. Can I just say that so often when people deal with Romans 12 verse 2, the renewing of the mind, they don't deal with this verse. But this is a massive, therefore, transition. So he says, therefore, in view of what? In view of God's great Mercy. What does that mean? The word mercy there literally means that in view of God breaking into our miseries, our failings, and our brokenness. When did that happen? When Jesus came to earth. Jesus literally broke into the misery, the failings, and the brokenness of humanity. And he said, I'm going to show you that there's something better. So in view of Jesus breaking into our life and that being called mercy, what does Paul say? That you should offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And what is this? This is your proper and true worship. So, so, so what is worship? According to Paul, if God broke into our brokenness, our failings, and our miseries, and He's restored us, made us new, could it be that He's saying, I want you, 
as a form of worship, maybe not just as a form, but the form of worship to break into other people's brokenness, misery, and failings so that you could bring mercy to them? Could that be worship? That's not just worship. <laughs> That's what Paul's saying. This is the ultimate expression of worship. That we, when we see brokenness, when we see misery, when we see failing, there's a sense of calling saying, God, I'm ready to move into that. When we see things in society not shaping uh, in the way that it should be, we, are, we, we sense that, that experience of calling driving us into that moment, knowing that God is calling us to worship Him by breaking into brokenness. Because we've received mercy. And what we've received, we share. And then comes the age-old, uh, probably one of the mo uh, most well-known scriptures when it deals with the mind. Where Paul comes and he says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Who wants to see God's will formed in their life? What's the pathway to that? Understanding true worship. That means that in the same way that Christ broke into something, we've got to break into brokenness. So we can never isolate ourselves from brokenness. But then there's a second facet connected to that, that we should not be conformed to the pattern. That word conformed is the Greek word syskimatizo, uh, which literally means don't be identified or don't assume a similar outward form to that of the world. Don't take on the shape of the world. Now, I had a very interesting little experience um, in terms of shaping something or conforming something to a smaller pattern. Uh, the word conform also means reducing what is big into a very small space. So when Talita was born, my eldest, um, she was about a few months old, and I took over a ministry in one of our churches in South Africa. Uh, the guy before me was Mr. Boxes. He planned everything meticulous. You know those kind of people, where they've got a tick and a box and a line and a circle for everything that exists. And, and it was in that, that um, every time he sort of presented stuff, it just looked so clean and so good. So I had to take over this ministry. He was moving to England, and I sat the whole day drawing my um, term planner. It was the days before I understood computers. So I actually had a ruler, and I drew it on a piece of A4 paper right there. And then I thought, Clint, now you've got to copy that from there to there. So it took me eight hours to draw one table, one term planner. But I was proud of myself because it looked good. And I saved it on um, a little <coughs> floppy disk kind of thing, drove to the church, and as I put it into the computer, the computer just went, Pfft. it's the kind of sound that we really don't appreciate anything. Um, it just, um. but I realized I was so well planned that I had enough time to drive back home, to save it on another disk, and to come back and print it at church. So when I got back home, put our computer on, and guess what happened? It sort of made that weird sound. And I realized there that I'm in trouble. But it wasn't deep trouble because I still knew that I had my piece of paper that I could copy. So I walked into the kitchen and said to Melise, um, sweetie, where's my paper that I drew on? And she said, oh, it's in the dustbin. And that sense of, oh, that's not good. And I opened the dustbin and realized that unfortunately... That wasn't the last thing she threw in the dustbin. She threw some baby food and some gunk onto that piece of paper. And as I took it out, I realized that I'm going to present at tonight's meeting <laughs> with a piece of baby food paper. Um, and I was just so disappointed. And I walked out um, of the front door and Melissa was watching um, soapies like she often does. She's going to kill me because she really doesn't. <laughs> 
And just in my annoyance, I just hit the front door. But there was so much frustration that when I hit the front door, I literally uh, broke the knuckle casing. It just splintered. So I opened the door, and my knuckle was broken, and I fell on the grass. And Melise got such, such a fright because I hit the door, and Talita was almost asleep, and she got a fright. She opened the door. She said, I hope it's broken. I hope it's sore. Yeah. And I'm like, you don't know. The <laughs> Long story short, I um, literally destroyed this whole knuckle casing. And for two weeks, I was too proud to go to a doctor um, until I realized that there's trouble. So I called a friend of mine. I said, listen, Yaku, he's a doctor. I need some help, but I don't want to go through the whole process because I'm the most patient man that I know. I said, do you know a shortcut? He said, yes, I do. Uh, one of my friends is an orthopedic surgeon. Um, he'll help you. He made a few phone calls. He said, just be there this afternoon and bring the x-rays with. So went, brought the x-rays, um, and the surgeon looked at my, f my finger, looked at the x-rays. He said, oh, little boxer you are you. He said, what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm a pastor. Um, <laughs> he said, oh, I'd love to hear the story. I said, no, you don't. Um, and he looked at Yaku. He said, well, there's two options. We can either reduce this or we can fix it surgically. Uh, if you want to do it surgically, it's a long waiting process. Or reduction is just a little process we do this, this afternoon and you'll walk out. And I said, that sounds good. So he looked at Yaku, looked at the x-rays. He said to Yaku, take his hands, put it behind his back. But can I just say, next time a doctor does anything like that to you, hit him first. Um, really good idea. Because what he did when my hand was behind the back, he looked at the x-ray and he pulled his finger and forced it back into the knuckle casing and then molded the knuckle casing around the finger. I nearly died. Uh, I said, what in the world did you do with me? He said, well, reduction is taking something that was splintered or something that's big and forcing it into something small. When he said that, I understood, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Where what conforming does is it takes this life that God created and forces it into small places that it fits the mold of the world. And Paul says, don't be conformed. See, confirmation, um, conforming to the world happens either through fear or our negative limiting beliefs, um, the unknown or sin. All these things takes this big thing that God designed, this life that's an expression of His image and likeness and sort of crushes it into a small place. Now, looking at that, um, there's a parable that Jesus introduces in the book of Mark, where I think Jesus is actually quite cool. <laughs> And when he says these next words, just listen to this. In Mark 4, verse 13, he says, If you don't understand this story, how will you understand anything else? Just think about that for a moment. When, when Jesus says, I'm going to give you a story, and that story actually refers to the understanding of how we deal with ourselves, our mind, the internal world, that if you understand the story, good on you. But if you don't, you won't understand anything else. It's the parable of the sower, literally referred to as the mo mother of all parables. So it's the parable that sets up every other parable. And the way parables worked is um, Jesus used a picture of something that was familiar to his listeners and introduced this picture but as you consider this picture, you realize that this picture became a mirror where you started looking at yourself. But I don't know, like you, um, there was a time where I looked at the mirror and I realized my hair was falling out. Uh, this is not a choice. <laughs> really not. Um, but you look at the mirror and, and you see things that you don't like. And what people do if they're confronted with things that aren't good is they push the mirror away. They push that moment of self-reflection away. And they refuse to deal with what they're seeing. 
But the beauty, if we allow ourselves to actually look into the mirror, we embrace the salvation available, and the mirror becomes a window <laughs> that actually releases God's grace to others. So going from a picture to a mirror to a window is actually what God had in mind with the parables. A parable of the sower, I don't have too much time to go through everything in detail, but we know that there were a sower, and in every part of the story, it's the same sower and the same seed. Nothing changes in terms of the sower and the seed. But it starts by saying there was a sower who sowed seeds that fell on the road. Now, to understand that, you've got to understand how the little farming plots worked in ancient times. That it was not as big as what we see in Australia. It was little blocks of land, and the only way they distinguished this piece of farm from that was by little walkways between the plots. And you know what happens if you start walking over the same piece of patch? It starts um, becoming hard so that seed can't penetrate. So what Jesus is saying is that there's a space in your life, in your mind, where the sower, same sower, same seed could fall, and it can't penetrate your life. It speaks about a trafficked mind, a mind that has been exposed to so much stuff through television and phones and the stuff that really occupies our mind that at some point, it so traffics our mind to the extent that the Word of God can't penetrate our lives anymore. I don't know about you, but it's a real challenge in today's time. I still rem remember the time where if I wanted to know something, I had to go to a library to find it out. Guess what I do now? And <laughs> start off by searching the good stuff, but then I wonder what the news is saying, and I wonder what updates, and I wonder what this, and I wonder, and I wonder, and I wonder, and before you realize, you've trafficked your mind to such an extent that the Word of God, the seed, can't penetrate your mind. The second one is where seeds fall on um, a patch of ground that has rocks in it, and, and if you understand the picture there, um, if you had a piece of farming land, you had to meticulously clean out that piece of land. Not just from the weeds, and we'll get that to that in a sec, but from the rocks. Because if these seeds fell in the piece of ground and there were still rocks in, what happened was these rocks become so warm because they bake in the sun that the seed germinates just like that. But because the rocks become so much warmer than the seeds, the, the, the heat of the rocks actually kills the seed by burning it to death. And that's not just all about the traffic of the mind. It's about dealing with the fact that you have an undisciplined mind, where there's still certain things embedded in your mind that you had to deal with a long, long time ago. You had to work this ground, but you haven't done it. And now everyone around you and you are paying the price because of the rocks and the stuff that's still embedded in there, that had to be cleaned out. And every time the Word of God comes, it sort of bursts open. Yes, I want this, but because of the presence of the rocks, it destroys the seed in your mind. The third one is where it speaks of weeds. Can I just say it's not the weeds that everyone had a past history with. It's real weeds. I'm not a great gardener. Something that really frustrates me is the fact that weeds grow so much quicker than grass and plants. It's like if there's ever a question I want to ask God, it's why? Why this? But the reality of weeds is the fact that when we allow weeds to grow, it says the farmer sowed, um, the seeds came up, but also the weeds, and in time, the growth of the weeds killed the seeds. It speaks of an undiscriminate mind, where you allow in your mind all things to carry the same power of truth, that everything is true or everything is relative, that there's a part of this story where there's certain things that's true and certain things that's not. 
Gravity. Does gravity work or not? Who believes in gravity? Who doesn't? Go and try if you want to. Gra- gravity is not relative. Gravity is true. But when it comes to certain things in terms of what is revealed in the Bible, we think that we have the right to determine what we think the truth should be around that. Now, that only changes your perception and your perspective. It doesn't change the truth. And there's something in terms of this undiscriminate mind that it almost says that I don't discriminate against truth anymore, that everything can be true, and always and all roads leads to God, and everything that the world presents could be an option. And it's a way of killing the seeds in your life. Those three aspects, the traffic mind, the undisciplined mind, or the um, undiscriminate mind, actually leads to a place where it conforms, it reduces you to something so, so small. But Paul comes and he says, don't be conformed, but be transformed. Now, now this is something that really got me. See, the process of transformation isn't just another mind skill. Listen to what it means. The word transforms, the word metamorpho means meta. It's the word meta. Change that occurs after being with someone. So there's a presence of God reality that facilitates this change. That it's the change that comes because we've been with God. He says it's change after being with someone where you are transfigured or revolutionized or furnished with the reality of the one that you've been with. So where conform means I'm taking something big and forcing it into something small, transformed means the moment you walk into the presence of God or experience the presence of God, it expands you, it revolutionizes you, that you can't be placed in a mold ever again in your life. You're unique, you're something special, you're a fingerprint of God's unique creative identity, and that's what He's got in mind. So be transformed, be released, be revolutionized by this um, experience of His presence. And, and then he says, how we are transformed, he says, by the renewing. Now, the word renewing isn't a word that speaks of starting something. It more speaks of completing something. So who's ever said yes to Jesus in their life? Raise your hand. Do you realize that that was the start of God's work in your life? And that He wants to complete something in you? And that this completion isn't just you dying and going to heaven. The completion is you coming to a place of maturity where your life actually reflects the glory that God created you for. If you don't believe me, listen to what he says. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and Approve literally means you will be able to give a revelation of God's will in your life. Now, this is almost scary. See, the word good means um, that which originates from God. So be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove what God has placed in you that originates from Him. Could it be that before the foundation of the world that God had plans and designs over your life? Could it be that God had in mind that you would be in this place, in this moment, in this generation to give an expression of His glory? Could it be that all those lies that said you're not worth, you can't, you shouldn't, all of those are nullified because when you understand God's transformation process, it validates that you need to exist in this moment, in this time, to give an expression of everything that originated in his mind. When Jeremiah came to God and said, listen, God, I don't think I'm the right guy, God said to Jeremiah, shush, before you were formed, you were created. Before your mom or dad had anything to do with you, I formed you. I created you. I made you. 
So there's something about us actually giving an expression of that which originated in the heart of God. And I believe so many people are still standing on the foot of the mountain, still wondering, God, can I, should I, would I? They're conformed to something small because they don't believe that there's something that God placed in you originating from His purpose, His creativity, His desire for your life that He wants to give expression to, and this generation needs it. See, it's something that when you start living that, you have that sense of, oh, it's well-pleasing. What was it that God said about Jesus when he was baptized? This is my son in whom I'm well-pleased with. Could it be that Jesus was the first son but not the only son? And that there's many sons and daughters that need to hear that word, those words from Christ, oh, from God, originate over their lives, that you are my son, you are my daughter. I am pleased with you. If you express in your life what's originated from me. So it's good. It's pleasing. But then perfect. When, when I read the word perfect, I sometimes feel, God, that's difficult. But the word perfect is the word teleos that means mature or something going through the ne necessary stages to reach an end goal <laughs> or something, and listen to this, that God designed in a way so that it would function at its full capacity in a point in time. Could it be... <laughs> That us just struggling and looking at mountains and wondering, God, is it possible? Can we? Should we? All of that isn't the big challenge. But the biggest challenge is actually grabbing onto the fact that God's called us to say, God, I want to see what it looks like if your power, your desire in me actually functions at its full strength and its optimal effectiveness. I wonder what will happen in the world if we start living this way. In Romans 8, Paul actually says the whole creation is waiting for us. To reveal His glory. See, this, the, the trap of the enemy is to keep us in, trapped in this little mindset that life is a struggle. Oh, it's so difficult. Oh, it's so that. The reality of the glory that God has called us to is to say that I want you. God says, I want you to live a good, a pleasing, and a perfect life that exhibits the fullness of my glory in and through who you are. Paul takes us in Philippians 1 verse 6, and he says, I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work, where did it originate? In him. Will continue to complete it, perfect it, until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, we've read that saying, well, at least God's going to form my character so that I would be a nice person when Jesus comes. This is so much more than just being a nice person. It's living in the full capacity of His design in and through your life. It's coming to a point where you say, this is what I was made for. This is what I need to live for. It's really giving expression to God's purpose and His will in your life. So I want to conclude. <laughs> Why is this a struggle? In Corinthians, Paul says that the mind is a battlefield. So there's, there's a real battle going on. So he comes and in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3 and he says, For though we live in the world, I just want to say, where do we live? We're still in this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish Strongholds. What's a stronghold? It's a fortified military stronghold, a walled fortress or a prison that keeps things out and keeps things in. The problem with a stronghold is it keeps the wrong stuff out and the wrong stuff in. What does Paul say? <laughs> we have divine power. It's literally the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, effective power to demolish strongholds. See, the enemy comes and he starts building strongholds one brick at a time in your life. 
that without you knowing, at some point you realize that what was a little wall becomes a, a fortress, and you can't see beyond, beyond that anymore. You need the experience of the presence and the power, the ability of God to demolish a stronghold. How do we do that? Paul says in verse 5, we demolish arguments. The word argument means um, reasoning that reflects someone's values. So could it be that I have some values and opinions that is contrary to the Word of God? So I need to realize that it demolishes, it destroys some of my opinions that are contrary to the Word of God and pretenses um, <clears throat> that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And then he comes and he says, we take. Who takes? Where's the sense of agency here? Is it something we go out saying, God, help me? Or is this God saying, I've given you the ability to take these thoughts captive? You do something about this. I've done everything. The cross is a complete work. The cross can complete you, mature you. The cross can release you to the place where you can function in your full capacity. You need to take every thought captive. So how do we do this? <laughs> well, I, you can't defeat what you can't define. So identify the thoughts that are holding you captive. See, some of these thoughts have held you at the foot of the mountain for so long. So what are they? You can't defeat what you can't define. Second thing is name the truth that demolishes that stronghold. If I feel <laughs> that I'm weak or that I'm just a sinner or that I'm just, what's the truth embedded in the Word of God? You're a saint. You've been created in the image and likeness of God. You were made for a purpose. There's so many things that the Bible actually expresses that gives us an understanding of who we are and what we are able to do. And the last one. is where we reframe these thoughts into points of victory. See, the issue is, it's never the facts <laughs> that are different, it's the filter. So two people can sit and look at the same thing and come to different conclusions. Why? Same facts, gray dots, different filter. Have you allowed God to shape your imagination? <laughs> Or has your imagination been shaped, conformed, or reduced by the world? I want to read you a portion of Scripture out of the book Lamentations that shows you the transition that Solomon went through. It's an incredible um, piece of Bible poetry. I've got it on the screen for you. Just listen to how Solomon reframes the mountain and try and find yourself in this picture. He says, I'll never forget the trouble, the utter lostness, the taste of ashes, the poison I've swallowed. He said, I remember it all. Oh, how well I remember the feeling of hitting rock bottom. Has anyone ever felt that in their life? Where the sense of, I've got to take a next step. But it's felt to me that I've lost the ability to move. And I'm stuck on the side of this mountain. And I can't take a step forward. That's exactly what he says. Could have been the breakup of a relationship a marriage, a friendship, it could be finances, it could be sin, it could be some trauma, that sense of hitting rock bottom. But then Solomon comes and he says, I'm going to reframe this because that's not the only reality in my life. He says, there's one other thing I remember. I call it to mind. And remembering this, I keep a grip on hope. 
and he comes talking about God. He says, God's loyal love couldn't have run out. His merciful love could not have dried up. They're created new every single morning. That there's something about, about God's mercy and His faithfulness that never stops. Every morning, every day, God is ready to break into your brokenness, into your misery, into your failing, to show you that He's available, that He's willing, and that He loves you. And then He comes and He says, how great your faithfulness, God. You will never stop. He says, I'm sticking with God because He's all that I have. And that's not a small point of thought. It's like, I'm sticking with God. I've discovered the winning way. I've discovered the point of victory. I've discovered life. That the other option is an option where I'm self-sabotaged, where I allow self-sabotaging or stuckness to define me. But I've got to realize that Jesus actually did everything necessary. See, the last thing that Jesus did just before he died is he had to climb a hill called Golgotha. He climbed a mountain after being whipped and crushed to pieces so that we don't have to stand on the foot of a mountain. He climbed that mountain so that we could no longer sit in that space where we feel, God, are you angry? Are you displeased? Do you hate me? What Jesus did on that hill was to actually reframe our whole experience of God, where God says, from now on, it's not about your sin anymore. It's about my life in you. And I'm going to give you a piece of me. And I want to ask you to start living this out in the fullness of who I am in you. Let's close our eyes. I had a real sense this morning that God want, wanted to, to do something for people feeling that they are stuck. People that's had this experience that they've self-sabotaged their own life over and over again. It's as if you've walked around that same mountain and every time you get close to a point of victory, every time you get close to a place where you feel, I can actually do this, it's almost as if you self-sabotage, you destroy your own progress. You feel stuck. And you feel like there's just no way forward. I want to pray for you. So if you're at that place, don't you just want to raise your hand? There's two things that I want to pray for, but this is the first one. If you feel that you're stuck at the side of the mountain, there's a few people's hands going up. Thank you. Could I ask you just, if you raise your hand, don't you just want to stand for me? There's a moment that I believe God just wants to release certain things in people's lives. Thank you, Jesus. If you're close to someone standing, don't you just want to raise or just lay your hands on them? Thank you, Jesus. Just make sure that everyone has someone just with them, close by them. I believe God wants to do something significant in your life this morning. And part of that is just opening your eyes so that you can see truth. So God... In the name of Jesus, I pray for each person standing, every person, Lord, that ha that's had an experience of, of being stuck at the foot of the mountain, Lord, stuck in a place and a season where they felt that there's no more movement, that I can't progress, almost feeling, Lord, that they're slipping down. I want to pray, Lord, that you would show them that the transformation that you have promised is a transformation that comes from being with you. The fact that you are with them and in them and involved in this process of transformation. So in the name of Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would break the power of conforming to a lesser image. And Lord, that you would open their minds so that they would see the glory that you've called them to in the name of of Jesus, Lord, shatter any mold that wants to reduce them, Lord. Break anything, Lord, that wants to belittle them in their own mind or in the mind of the world. 
and show them who they truly are in the name of Jesus. So I pray, Lord, that you would transform them by the renewing of your, their minds so that they would be able to prove in this season what the good, perfect, and pleasing will of God is. Father, I pray that they would hear these words, that you are pleasing to God. God loves you. But more than just love, God's got a purpose and a plan for you in this season. And that's what the enemy wanted to derail. He wants you to stop, to conform. God wants you to progress in the next season. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. The second thing I want to pray for before we just go into a time of um, worship is, if you're just saying, God, um, I don't feel conformed, <laughs> but it's more about me than your purpose in my life in this moment. Sometimes it's more about my comfort <laughs> than your purpose. And I just want to sign up again today just to say, I want to see your, the fullness of your glory function in this life for the next season. Where it's not about me, it's for you and your glory. If you just want to be included in prayer, I just want to pray for you. People saying, God, I want to live the good, the pleasing, and the perfect will of God. Then you want to stand with me. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I want to thank you for people saying that they want to live above their own comfort, Lord. They want to live lives that reveals and exhibits the fullness of your glory in them. So in the name of Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would create movement and transformation and progress and understanding so that the will of God will become something clear in their lives. Lord, that their comfort will be dwarfed by the understanding of their calling, Lord. That they would see calling as something that is attainable, something that is livable, something, Lord, that will give expression of you in this generation. I want to pray, Lord, that we would see this in every sphere of society, the church, in business, in government, in education, in sports, in the welfare of our city, in every facet of our community. I want to pray, Lord, that Morayfield will see a revelation of God's glory hit this community to change the understanding of what God's presence looks like when it hits a suburb and a geographical space. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.